From Hong Kong, this is Mea Kupa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast, based upon the postmodern conference where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. Today, we talk to Jean Su. Jean Su is a problem solver who is also into tech, gadget, fashion, food, tennis, startup, location-based apps, green biz, and way more. Just read his LinkedIn about that. Jean is also an active ecosystem partner or ecosystem builder from Hong Kong. Started out with, is one of the founders of Startups HK. He's also did his own startups and he's now working as a ecosystem builder for a big corporation in Hong Kong. Welcome, Jean. Thanks, Jeff, for having me. You're welcome. Jean, can you tell me, how did you end up in startups? Because I see that you're originally a firmware software engineer, right? Yes. Um... You know, it's it's funny when I think about it because when I was a firmware engineer, I was actually working in Silicon Valley. This was back in 2003. Um, and I was there as a firmware engineer working in SanDisk, the flash memory maker. And what I deal with was like every day I go to the lab and um, I program the chips on flash memory cards to essentially, you know, improve the speed and efficiency of these cards, right? You know, everyone is chasing speed and also chasing space, right? And like, uh, you know, while I was there in Silicon Valley, uh, what kind of companies were building up? Google, for example, then there's Facebook. And I remember thinking to myself, why do I even need Facebook? I've got Friendster. <laughs> and like uh, the thought of startup never ever entered my mind at all i was i don't even know what it was i was just all about tech you know silicon valley is tech and since i got myself there i was like super happy and you know and i was really enjoying the bay area and you know life life was great um so what actually ended up happening was in 2007 i was in business school at that time uh doing my mba and like the iphone was invented and um subsequently the app store and when that came about, right, I thought, wow, this, I mean, I love tech, right? And like I, and I saw that the app space is very interesting and I had some ideas that, you know, that I thought about. So I thought, wait, how do I even put this into reality? Like, what do I, how do I do it? Then I realized, okay, there's this thing called startup and you, where you actually figure out how to turn, um, a solution that you have in mind that solves a problem into reality. And that, and that is when I actually started to figure out how to actually do things. And that basically got me on this like crazy journey for the past 11 years. <laughs> but as a firmware engineer, I don't know many firmware engineers that are going to do like business school, like an MBA. What made you decide to do an MBA? Yeah, actually, that's a great question as well because like um so i was in, in uh, i was in i started firmware engineering my first job in 2003 and then um you know about two years into the job i've always been thinking like um how do i actually go back to hong kong here which is where my family is right um at that time i think even now it's challenging if you're in the r d space um you know doing engineering work to to find good jobs in hong kong so I was like, and also at the same time, I was thinking like, you know, maybe I could do other things, um, not just work in the lab. Maybe I'm actually better with people too. And I, I actually wanted to explore that skill. 
you know, to, to be, to do more things, um, you know, on the business side of, um, things, uh, business side of, um, you know, yeah, things and basically interact more with people as opposed to just with computers. Mm-hmm. And, um, so what I did was, um, I ended up going to Accenture, um, and how I actually found that was um, through a uh, squash, uh, a friend who plays squash with me, because he was a consultant. And then basically I asked him, hey, what do you do in your job? He said, oh, yeah, we actually help our clients solve problems. And, um, and, I, and I thought, hey, that, that's pretty interesting. So that's how what, you know, basically got me into management consulting. Okay. Uh, and I joined Accenture in 2005 uh, in San Francisco. And then all the way until 2007, and I still haven't been able to achieve my original goal, which is to go back to Hong Kong, <laughs> right? So, and I thought, okay, maybe I can um, do an MBA to um, you know, brush up my finance skills and potentially take up a finance job in Hong Kong. And that's basically what I did. Um, but unknowingly, you know, like I did not go into the finance space, but I went into the startup space after B school. Because of the reasons that I mentioned before, the iPhone was invented. I came up with ideas and I figured out, or I, I would say like I, I was, yeah, I found startups and that really attracted me and that really, you know, got me into this space. Yeah, because what, what I know about you is that uh, when you came to Hong Kong, found a style nearby, right? Yes. What was it for you to say, hey, I have an idea here here and i want to pursue that what what was a trigger for you for and what was style nearby what what were they doing Mm -hmm. yeah so style nearby is actually an app similar to pinterest which allows you to pin interesting um products um related to design um and after you've pinned them uh you can actually see where they are located around the city so the idea is to drive exposure and help or help people discover interesting products around the city and uh, even when it's like you know in upstairs in a building or in a small alley in basically not the big malls that you see around where all the big brands are so that is basically what's down nearby is about mm-hmm. but that's something that let's put it that way i run the founder institute here in hong kong as you know and every year we have a lot of people applying for that and there's always somebody who wants to basically try to solve this space you tried it too yeah, i tried it too <laughs> and i failed Mr. B. <laughs> uh, can you tell me what was your unique angle to this with style nearby and what do you still see out there maybe even at that point what, what didn't work for you and and how did you realize that it didn't work so you know um oftentimes i think uniqueness come from playing in a niche and also offering um, certain functionalities that is not applied to that niche. And my niche is about design products. And the functionality is that it actually has location tied to a photo and allow you to pin it. At that time, there wasn't like, you know, Instagram or things like that or um, you know, many things that allow you to remember where things are uh, that relates to how they look. So that was the niche, right? Um, and I, I, at that point, at least, that was the unique part. Um, what was actually really challenging about playing in a niche is that your audience 
is very much limited. Um, and also, I was thinking a lot on the lines of technology, where I was thinking like, oh, okay, how does the tech actually work? How do people actually use this tech? How do I make it more advanced so that the shops, the merchants do not have to do as much work, right? And how do I actually filter out or like, you know, sort different items? But I never thought about the, the human side of it. Um, running an app, you know, like this is actually like running a media. And when you have media, what people don't really want is like tons of data that doesn't like correlate. They want actually concise information that actually would help them make decision. That is why you see a lot of, uh, you know, if you, even if you open any news app, right, they don't show you like millions of articles. They would show you like in a page, probably like 10, 20 articles, right, which are all curated, all edited. And that is a function in my team that I didn't even have, right? And like, uh, I think that was a big gap that I did not realize like, early on or even like, you know, later stage when I kind of ran out of resources. Um, so curation is really, really important. You know, having good like editors um, for such a media um, app um, or yeah, website is, is, is really important. And I completely did not have that. Yeah, which is like a big thing. When you started this out, you, you had an idea, of course, but did you have something in mind for yourself? Like, hey, these are my goals. These are my KPIs. I'm going to set that. And if I don't get to it, I will do something else. Or was it just, I'll start and I'll see where this ends? Yeah, I did not. Yeah, you're right. I, I did not set very clear KPIs. Um, I was trying to... S- to actually build it up and see, like, first, if I actually could get a paid customer, and I actually did, um, but that wasn't actually good enough. You know, getting one or two or three paid customer doesn't really, I mean, it, it means something, but it doesn't mean that you can get, you know, 100 paying customers, right? Um, and then the other thing is, like, I at that time wasn't tracking you know, retention or like really like getting close to the users and keep asking them questions and getting feedback. I think that is a part that um, I definitely did not do enough of. Didn't you read the Lean Startup Mythology book from Eric Ries? Yeah, at that time, I think it wasn't out yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes. But um, but yeah, I, 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 yeah, these are, there are some big mistakes I've, I've made. And did you have co-founders? Did you have a team? Like, how was the the early stage founding of Crystal New yeah. look like? Very early stages, no co-founder. Um, I outsourced the development to a local uh, dev team out here, mm-hmm. um, and then so that was what turned out to be, you know, essentially the first version of the app. And then I realized that you know uh, it's not really working. You know, going the outsource mode because it costs quite a bit of money, right? And um, I got on board two co-founders later on. Um, both are in, you know, they have tech backgrounds, and also one has uh, tech and design. And like, um, so that basically we got to version two of the app. But still, I was still missing the very big thing, which is I mentioned the editorial part, right? And uh, I still didn't have that. And I didn't even think about building it at that time. Um, 
not sure why, but um, what were for you the the signs that you now, in hindsight, uh, say like, oh, those were the signs mm-hmm. that I needed curation. But at that point, you were probably like struggling with something that you now recognize as being signs that you needed curation. But what were those signs? What were for you? Uh, if you try to think back how you were thinking at that point without the knowledge that you have right now, like what kind of struggles did you had literally on, on a daily basis that you said like, hey, this is working like feedback from potential customers or uh, engagement was low or how did you, uh, how was it at that point in time for you that you uh, yeah, said this is a struggle? Yeah, um, it is basically the, the lack of engagement actually. You know, I was getting downloads, but I wasn't really getting people. I wasn't seeing people actually interacting much with the app. Um, and like, um, yeah, I, I, I just didn't. And also, I felt that the problem wasn't actually painful enough for myself. So it was very hard to build this product. Um, yeah, you know, we always say like, you know, we want to find a product that solves a problem that we also suffer mm-hmm. Um, whereas I, at that time, I don't feel that I suffered that much pain from the problem. So I guess like I was not as motivated enough to, to really try and solve it, solve it. You know, I was trying to like say, oh, okay, how do I fix the problem? It's not how I, the, how do I fix the engagement or how do I actually do better, Mm -hmm. but not really like, oh, how do I solve this problem such that I'm actually happier and i'm actually solving uh, my own problem that was actually a, a big um revelation yeah okay and at one point you start realizing this either is not going to work or i have to pivot what it was there like one thing that you said that i could point to that particular moment that i started realizing that this is working or was it like a combination of items can you tell a little bit more yeah, I, I think it was a, a combination. The thing about like startups team, we always say is that the team needs oxygen to survive. And actually, what the oxygen is, is customer feedback, traction. Um, and, you know, co-founders and people on your team and even yourself, you want to see reaction, right, from people. If, even if they hate it, it's good. That means like something is really wrong. But the worst kind of reaction is non-reaction, like people don't even care. And I think at a certain point, you know, when I see that my team uh, is kind of breaking up in a sense that, you know, people need to, well, they need to put a roof over their head. They need food, right? They need to get paid. People can sweat equity, but you can't sweat equity forever. So like, you know, people will start doing other things if your thing is not working. And I see that, right? So people get distracted the product slows down in, in terms of iteration. Um, so that's basically what ended up happening. Am I correct to, at that point, understand that this was a self-funded bootstrap slash non-external investor uh, venture? Yeah. Okay. And how did you, because it's also quite often, like as you know, a quite often asked question is, how did you find after the you said the initial outsourcing of the app how did you find technical people to be willing to work with you on this on sweat equity basis what were your skills because quite often a lot of people are struggling with that aspect yeah i uh i was actually very grateful um for 
Joseph Chang and also actually another guy called Jackie Chan to come on board to be my co-founders. Um, yeah, they believed in in me and they believed in the idea, and actually they they went behind me and and helped me um, deliver the um, you know the second phase of the app. And um, yeah, I I how did I do it? I you know I I really just pitched them on the idea, and uh, of course I showed them the initial app that I did and the traction that I've received, and um, yeah, they bought in. Uh, how were you able to pitch them? Because quite often it's also the question is like, hey, where do I find people like Jackie and those technical people? Joseph, Joseph. yeah. Where did you find them? Corner on the street and networking? Um, yeah. So I actually don't remember, but it's, but because, oh, but of course, Startups HK, right? Um, you know, when I was actually, um, you know, building up Stown nearby, I, I realized how Hong Kong startup ecosystem was essentially non-existent, right? There's no ecosystem. So I, I met some, um, the co-founders of Startups HK via Twitter, right? Um, that's how I met Casey, um, Casey Lau. Mm-hmm. And like, um, and then he introduced me to Jonathan Buford. And like, um, and then we, we essentially were a bunch of founders, right? And like, um, we started to build a community. And actually through the community, I got to meet a lot of, a lot more other people and that's how i ended up finding like jackie and also joseph as a uh, co-founder of startup hk now started gba the greater bay area mainland china hong kong cow you started out i think around like 10 years ago right yeah did first startup saturday or something like that yes that's right that was our first event can you tell me a little bit about the challenges of building an ecosystem or trying to build an ecosystem uh, here here in Hong Kong with just a bunch of enthusiasts in, in the startup space. Yeah, very business, financial-oriented city like Hong Kong. Yeah. You know what? I think at that time, we didn't really think of it as like a challenge because the whole idea was to meet other founders and also figure out like, you know, how we could help each other. So we never thought about like, you know, you know, is it going to be a challenge trying to do something like gathering people in startups in Hong Kong? I mean, they are, we know they are there and like, uh, we just want to gather people. We don't really care like about how many people we actually gather or like, you know, how big the group actually gets. Um, but of course, you know, as the startup ecosystem grow, we do notice that you know there are hurdles for startups to scale you know out of hong kong there are many problems that founders encounter and some of these problems may originate from um, certain policies um, you know the way things are in the city and um, yeah but i would say that um, you know given you know we are where we are um, we, at that time, initially, you know, we were really just trying to gather, you know, people that are working on startups, that are building startups, and we, we focus on helping people solve their problems. Um, that was basically what got us started. Yeah. Any learnings from that, like maybe even organizing events that went wrong or sponsors that were coming on that later on had alternative motives or something else like that? Yeah, actually, for sure. I mean, like, um, 
I guess the challenge as like an ecosystem builder um, that is actually you know giving a lot of time you know to to really you know bring people together. If this effort right is not sustained um, in a way like you know where we actually get more resource, we could hire more people. As the community grows, um, it weighs down a lot on the the few people that are actually building it up because you know we are giving a lot of the time and effort to do it. But if we don't actually find other ways to pull in resources, at a certain point in time, the amount of effort that we try to put in to build this ecosystem will will kind of run out of steam because it's tiring. <laughs> yeah. And like, uh, mm-hmm. this is actually where I guess, you know, as I mentioned, right, the, there is oxygen coming into the team being like, you know, people enjoy the ecosystem. People actually found that it actually, um, you know, helped them learn many things. But, you know, you need to figure out a way to capture um, what people were willing to give back, right, such that the community would be sustained. And one of the ways to do that is to turn it into a business, right? Um, by thinking more in the business mindset, really like, you know, thinking about pulling in revenue, um, you know, having expenses, paying for people to work um, for us, uh, lightening our load, keeping everybody's like um, commitment or more like, you know, their time to, in, um, to something that is like sustainable, I would say. Is, is quite critical. Um, and I think that this is, this is a big learning for sure. You know, I think that we always talk about give and take. You know, you can always give and people will always take, but are you able to take, right, at a certain point in time? Because like, if you just keep giving, it's not going to be healthy <laughs> because you will actually run out of steam. Because at the end of the day, you also need to put a roof over your head and also eat. Right, and there's only 24 hours per day, mm-hmm. right? So, so I think that is something that is um, is very important. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, after Style Nearby, you started out as the general manager for City Mapper in Hong Kong. For people who don't know what City Mapper is, can you give a little bit of introduction of City Mapper and your task were to roll out City Mapper in Hong Kong? Sure. Um, City Mapper is a the ultimate transport app. Um, it is an app that would actually tell you how to get from A to B in a city, utilizing all the different transport modes in the city. Um, be it you know a, a train, a bus, ferry. In Hong Kong's case, um, green minibus or even the red ones. Um, combining any of these to help you get to your destination and showing you all the different options that you can actually combine them in um, at any given time of day and any given location. Um, so it is an app actually that covers multiple cities. Currently it covers around 40 over cities around the world. And uh, it is um, a startup that was founded in 2011 out of London. And um, I helped to launch the app into Hong Kong in 2015. And there's the story around City Mapper is actually my story around it is quite interesting. And I think that a lot of other founders could take some cues um, in doing this is that um, I actually didn't 
seek a role at CityMapper. Um, and the, what I actually did was voted for the app to cover Hong Kong. So when I didn't see it uh, covering Hong Kong. So basically what happened was that in 2015, around May, I was actually in New York and I was like looking for an Italian restaurant to go to using my favorite app, Foursquare. And like um, when I clicked directions to like this Italian restaurant, the, the mapping menu popped up with three options, Google Maps, Apple Maps, and City Mapper. I'm like, City Mapper, what is this, right? So I clicked that and I actually had the app installed for some reason, but I've never opened it before. And um, what was presented to me blew me away. Uh, basically, there was all the options available in New York City that I could take to go to this um, Italian restaurant. But what's more even impressive is that it has all the real-time information of like when the bus is actually going to arrive at the stop, how I can actually walk to the bus stop, what bus do I take. Suddenly, basically, I became a guru. Like normally, I always relied on the subway, never take the bus, right? But this app changed everything. And that was when I, and I started looking more into the app and I see this page, this list of cities, and I don't see Hong Kong. I see Singapore there, but I don't see Hong Kong. I'm like, what? This has to be in Hong Kong. And then there was this button on the top right-hand corner that says, next city, question mark. So obviously I clicked that. So it was a Google form. And the first question was, hey, what city do you want us to cover in and why? So I wrote why, you know, Hong Kong's fantastic city with like great public transportation you need to be here uh we are full of apps that only covers single mode it doesn't connect different modes mm -hmm. and then at the bottom part there was an optional section and it says like hey do you want to get early access and bonus materials i'm like yeah sure i'm always up for early access to you know startups right so i actually saw that section and i said oh it, it basically asked me for my bio and how can i help so I say, oh, you know, I run this startup HK and I could actually introduce you to different people in Hong Kong, blah, blah, blah. And then two weeks later, the general manager, you know, in the headquarter gave me a call and said like, hey, Gene, uh, and during the call, he said, you know, asked me a lot of questions about Hong Kong, the transport system there. Um, and, and then also say like, hey, by the way, what are you doing now? And I said like, uh, you know, not much. I'm running this startup ecosystem and also help my, helping my wife on a fashion business. And then he said, like, would you be open to a consulting role to help us on, um, yeah, Hong Kong? And um, so I said, yeah, let's explore. And basically four weeks after that, they flew me out to London to work with the team, right? And it was, uh, it was really amazing. And yeah, and um, I was actually the first person they did that to, like, you know, like a general manager level type of person um, that they actually flew in from another city to work with a team. And three months after that, Hong Kong was launched and Hong, uh, in launched officially. And, uh, and actually at that time, I turned from being a consultant into a general manager. Um, yeah. <laughs> Again, I can understand. I've been living in Hong Kong now for uh, almost 10 years. Everything before that was very like what you said a lot of separate apps every transport organization had their own apps how hard was it to get those people to open up their schedules open up their 
real-time uh, locations open up their basically their their services through an API and and start working together with you on uh, on CityMapper because I can understand that might be uh, not the easiest task to do, especially in Hong Kong. Yes, absolutely. Um, actually, it was impossible um, to get real-time data at that time, and uh, because it was all not available essentially. And so what we actually focused on was at least get that static data, meaning like, you know, the non-real-time data, such as the routes, the stops, locations, um, the operating hours, which is very important, right? You want to know when you could actually take something. Um, So we, and actually the interesting thing is that for Hong Kong, even the static data is not good. And um, I still remember having to download PDFs just to see uh, when uh, a bus would depart from yes. a nearby bus uh, stop. Yeah, exactly. So there is no machine-readable data uh, in Hong Kong for many different um, transport um, operators. So we actually—that's why actually it took three months to launch Hong Kong. <laughs> it's because, like you know, me <laughs> actually I was doing a lot of that manual entry. Um, you know, of, of, of schedules and even the routes. I was plotting the, the routes of buses, like minibuses, right? Um, because actually for minibuses, it's even more undefined. Um, the data that we saw from the government, they had the start and the end point. That's the two data points we have for each minibus route. Can you believe that? <laughs> so try try to build a, a transport app with just the start and end point of a route and and basically you are supposed to help people figure out how to get on this bus in between <laughs> yeah so it, it it was uh it was crazy but i have to say um you know when when the data is bad you need more tech right and like um and you meet you need more resort resources to 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 solve that and and that's why when the city does not help the startup, the startup need to do more work to be able to generate the same result as another startup in a city that has done more of the groundwork for the startup, right? So what happens is that a lot of times why CityMapper would succeed in London, like by being founded in London as versus Hong Kong, is because like London has the best like open data at that time. Right back in 2011, out of many cities in the world. So the startup, if they are able to utilize the data to actually um, produce a solution that really could solve the problem and build traction, that's where they can use to get more resources because investors would be interested, people would believe in what they're actually doing to go get behind the startup. But if it's a startup coming from Hong Kong, Right, founded in Hong Kong, trying to do the same thing, it'll be almost impossible because the city is not right really helping itself. And this is why, like you know, the open data movement is is really really important. And like you know, cities need to be able to help themselves so that the startup can help them. So, how were you able to get, for instance, at that point, uh, if that open data is, is is not there, and of course you're you're trying to move that and trying to have people open that, but before that, you have a service to run. So, what did you do? Take every minibus uh, with a GPS in hand and track it in that way, or what were your tips and tricks and hacks to get it work? So, actually, you mentioned some of these hacks. 
you mentioned this PDF that you need to read, right? Um, basically, the hack is to use a human eye <laughs> to interpret the PDF mm -hmm. and then like type it back into the computer, right? And uh, that's the most basic hack. <laughs> that's the basic hack. And then like um, so, I talked about how the minibus data is only the start and the end point. So in Hong Kong, there are like some very enthusiastic, you know, people. They just spend their time, you know, just for not for for no reason really. Like you know, maybe it's their interest or passion, and they would actually map out every single minibus route along with the information. Um, this site is actually called 16seats.org, and like um, I talked to the founder there, and uh, he actually allowed us to use his information that he has collected through you know years right to to put into our our app and we turn all his um routes into you know the the minibus routes in the app so that we could help even more people i can understand when you got that okay you popped up a, a little beer or maybe even something stronger to say like yes we uh, we got this because for me, as I see that from uh, from the outside, that's a huge, uh, valuable data. Um, so the thing is, like um, that data was actually available publicly. <laughs> it's just that I, I was, I, we were trying to make sure that you know the founder was actually okay with it, and and he he was he was very nicely like uh, was and like yeah definitely we were very happy. I um, I bought him coffee or something, <laughs> um, and like. Um, yeah, but but the work, the work to actually turn that into something the computer that would that would actually read. Uh, so when that work was, that took two months just for the red minibus, right? And man, when that was done, I was like, I guess I just crashed in bed. <laughs> uh, I can, I I can understand that indeed. Yes. Okay. And then, of course, uh, at one point, everything moves smoothly. Uh, as I understand now that uh, you're now helping to build a ecosystem for the local MTR, the local metro system. How is that going and, and how did you came about doing that? Yeah, so, you know, I guess I started working with MTR well, since City Mapper days. Um, so in City Mapper, we did a partnership uh, with MTL uh, where they actually um, share with us the real-time uh, train status information uh, with City Mapper. So what this means is that in the in the in the City Mapper app, you'll be able to see what is the train status of all the metro lines in Hong Kong. So what can that do then? It means that if any of the lines f has a problem or a disruption. The app would know it and also help people to avoid it and also take, find the alternatives. For example, if you're trying to get from like Central to Causeway Bay, normally the number one choice is MTR. But if something is wrong, it will not say that is the number one choice. It would show you other options, right? And that is um, the main reason why you know there was this partnership with MTR. And like, um, so I started, you know, working with MTL at that time. And then earlier this year, actually about three months ago, um, I actually joined them as the head of ecosystem. And what this actually means is that, um, you know, my role, I'm, I'm in the global innovation department of MTR. And the department is in charge of driving innovation in this large organization. There are different ways to do it. Um, mainly two. 
One is to help MTL connect with the innovation ecosystem, right? By we can partner with startups, we could actually work with them on, you know, utilizing their products and services, um, and also like you know potentially even like you know come up with new services together. Uh, the other way is that we could actually build our own new solutions by working more like a startup. So um, this is what like global innovation department does, and like um, I am in, in this department. And like I guess by having the experience in working with some team members in MTL during my city mapper days, and the fact that I've been working on like a multimodal transport app for the past five years helped me land this role in MTR. And like, uh, it is really exciting because I think given the challenge in the world today, in a very different world right now we live in, and the way that you know innovation is actually speeding up, organizations like MTR would need to find new ways to do things. It's not just you know like it was back in the 70s or like the pre-internet world where, you know, if you are a transport operator, you know, you just make sure that you have your trains on time running safely. Um, and also as a, as a property um, management company, you know, managing the development of new stations, new residential areas, new commercial areas, how you, we can actually do more using technology uh, is going to introduce a lot of new dynamics into how a service provider like MTR is o- actually able to do business. Because MTR is not only, of course, indeed the metros, and it's all also not only Hong Kong, right? They have way more than only the actual metro in Hong Kong. Yes. Uh, so that's why our department is the Global Innovation Department. We actually uh, focus on um, MTR's global business. And currently, like MTL has presence in China, Hong Kong, Australia, UK, Sweden, and even like Macau, right? Um, so oftentimes, you know, we would operate different like uh, rails in uh, these other cities or countries. And like, um, and every single geography is different. And, and also the, the tech is different, right? So it's, it's important to be able to figure out um, the ecosystems in this area and, you know, the um, the way that people actually use technology in these different areas. Okay. Sounds a very exciting and impactful duration you're in right now. Just in general, what do you see in the next three to five years in innovation uh, going to happen in uh, the Greater Bay Area? Yeah. So the Greater Bay Area is actually very, very interesting because it is the only place in the world where the what i call the two internet meets the china internet and the rest of the world internet (laughs) and like um and also because of this right there's very interesting dynamics that could actually happen in the greater bay area as these two um essentially internets like crisscross um there's a lot of things that you know could be learned between these two systems and areas. And um, there's also a lot of, um, you know, advantages to be captured from both sides. Uh, but of course, you know, given the the clash between um, US and China right now, um, it does make things challenging 
But at the same time, I think for Hong, from Hong Kong's perspective, you know, we actually um, would want to really tap into how we can actually work better uh, with the different counterparts in the Greater Bay Area and be able to leverage each other's strengths to scale our businesses and solutions such that we can actually do more and help the world go forward. That's a great way. Um, what's most valuable advice that's ever given to you? Mm. Something that you really still remember somebody a former boss or a colleague or a mentor at one point said to you and that still resonates with you even today and you say like yeah that's that was a very valuable advice and i still live by that almost every single day yeah um i would think that you know it's um yeah i think the one of the one that really resonated with me was one from my professor um adam dell actually he's michael dell's brother and like um Back in business school, and like um, he actually told me that you know it's important to keep learning um, when you actually are working, and if you're working for someone, um, you know make sure that you're learning every single day. And when you're not, like if you're just going through the day, and then at the end of the month collecting the paycheck, then you know then that's not much point. You need to start figuring out you know how do you actually learn more. And another important thing is that you want to learn um, using other people's money if you can, <laughs> right? Instead of like you, you, you paying and then like, you know, getting to learn something. So, and they're actually, that's why actually people say like, hey, if you, you know, if you go to an accelerator, people are paying you to learn as opposed like, you know, if you go to business school, you're paying to learn, right, yourself. So I think in today's world, there are actually... Um, many ways to actually learn something using other people's money and like but of course you know when you, when you do that you want to make sure that you're contributing right and um i think that is something that is really important okay yeah is there one thing that you want people to take away from this talk what would that be something that you really want to drive home yeah i would say it's really important to do things that that you find motivating and you think is it's uh meaningful to yourself and um yeah because only then you actually will will really enjoy doing what you do every day and i think it's very important to to do that um but of course i think everyone has um responsibilities or um, let's say a family to take care of um i'll say that it's also very very important to keep that in mind and like as entrepreneurs sometimes you know we tend to go all in uh, into everything. But you also need to think about the, the, you know, the people that are with you and, and also uh, make sure that you take care of them as well. Family is uh, indeed very important and the people around you are also very important. I want to thank you for your valuable insights and sharing of your lessons learned in startups. Yeah, thank you, Jeff, for the, for the time. For the listeners, although the rating system and podcast is hideous, if you like a Mea Culpa series, then rate this podcast with five stars as motivation for the makers. Thanks to Mizuho Crowdbrain in Hong Kong for being the venue sponsor of this episode. And thank you for Kopi Ventures for making this series possible. This is Jeffrey Brewer. Go out and build something meaningful.